the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, listeners. Today is Saturday, May 9th, and welcome once again to another broadcast of The Truth Perspective. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and today in the studio, we have co-host Harrison Kelly. Hello. Hi. William Barbet. Good afternoon. And Shane Lachance. Hi, everybody. This week, we are very happy to have as our guest, Michael Snyder. Michael is well known for his blog's End of the American Dream, and the Economic Collapse. He is also author of the book, Get Prepared Now, Why a Great Crisis is Coming and How You Can Survive It, which he wrote with Barbara Fix. And Michael is also author of a novel, The Beginning of the End, a mystery thriller set in the near future, both of which are available on Amazon. He also produced a DVD called Economic Collapse, World War III, and Death of America, which is available on prophecyclubresources.com. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's great to be with you guys. Great to have you here. Uh, Before we get into how screwed up things are, Michael, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you began your blogs? You were practicing law for a little while, right? I was. Yeah, back in uh, a number of years ago, I was actually working right down on K Street. If you've ever watched a drama on television or a movie about Washington, D.C., and about lawyers or lobbyists, usually K Street will get in there somehow because that's kind of the main stretch where all the law firms are located, the lobbying groups, et cetera. And so that's where I worked. I worked as an attorney, a low-level but I was kind of there, down there on, in the belly of the beast, right in Washington, D.C. I'd get up every day. I lived across the river in, in uh, Arlington. Every day I would get up and uh, go down to the metro station and take the metro in and, and put in my time and then come home at night. And uh, I was just a, a working guy trying to make a living, but I was becoming increasingly distressed about what I was seeing around me. As so many Americans are, that becoming distressed with the government, both political parties, about the corruption I was seeing all around me, about the economy, about so many things. And I thought, well, what in the world can I do? I'm just a regular working guy getting up in the morning trying to trying to get a paycheck. I thought, what can I possibly do that can make a difference? Well, I thought about it for a while, and eventually I, I heard about this whole blogging thing. I'd never done it, but I heard a lot of people were doing it, so I thought, well, let me, uh, let me try my hand at this. So I started writing, and at first very, very few people took notice, but I stuck with it, and I kept going. And uh, eventually at the end of 2009, I started the economiccollapseblog.com, and it really took off. It really struck a nerve um, because at the time, millions of people had been losing their jobs and losing their homes and they didn't understand what was happening and and they knew they weren't getting the truth from the mainstream media. 
So people were looking out for alternative sources of information. It was at a time when the alternative media was really exploding. And so uh, I really started to build up an audience, and today the economiccollapseblog.com alone gets over a million page impressions per month. So it's just a tremendous audience. And then, of course, my articles don't just appear on my website. As, as your, many of your listeners may know already, my articles can be found all over the Internet on, on many websites much larger than mine. And so my articles are actually read more off of my websites than on them, um, which, is a, which is a great honor. And, and, and to have such distribution and to be able to make such an impact but I'm just uh, an average guy living in a home nestled in the mountains of Idaho in the middle of nowhere that is just trying to do the best that he can to make a difference. And we need everyone to try to do that because everyone has a gift. Personally, I can write. That's what I can do to try to make a difference in our country and our world. But others do uh, are, are excellent at other things, whether it's doing a radio show like you guys are doing or whether it's organizing street protests or doing YouTube videos. What some people can do with YouTube videos is absolutely amazing. You know, so everyone has something they can contribute, some some way they can make a difference, and so I'm just trying to do my part. Well, I'm sure that uh, many of the listeners who follow SOT uh, have read your articles because, you know, we carry uh, many of your articles, and i got to say, you know, the, the topics that you touch on, you know, they're real. They're really hot topics, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know what you're writing about. You know, there's there's an audience for, and um, you know, people really want to see and and uh, know about you know uh, the things that you're writing about. It's a it's a pretty explosive time. Um, I was wondering if you'd be able to uh, talk a little bit about the um, the DVD that you have out, the End of the American Dream, or oh, I'm sorry, the um, Economic Collapse, World War III, and the Death of America. Yeah. Yeah, on this DVD, I was recently uh, invited down to Dallas, Texas, to do two two-hour talks, and this DVD is the first of those two-hour talks. And uh, what I wanted to do is kind of put together in a two-hour, one-DVD format the most comprehensive warning about the future of this country that I've ever come across. Because, you know, I've written books, I've, I write articles, but a lot of people in this country don't take the time to really sit down and read a whole book, but they will watch a DVD. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that almost everyone does. They'll take a DVD, stick it in, and watch it for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to do is lay out the case from beginning with the economic collapse, and we can talk about this extensively on this program. I believe we're at the precipice of the next great financial, financial crisis. I explain the reasons why, and I've done that on my website, but on my website there's more than 1,200 articles. So what I've kind of done in this DVD is kind of summarize it, break it down, kind of explain where we are, what we're going into, and how it's going to play out, how it's going to affect people. Um, and so that's kind of the beginning of this timeline, of this warning that I'm explaining for people the economic collapse, the incredibly hard times that I believe we're about to enter into. I believe we're right at the precipice of all these things I've been writing about for so long. But then after that, I believe 
as economic conditions continue to get worse, I believe we're going to see martial law in this country. We're going to see a lot more civil unrest like we've seen in Ferguson and Baltimore. Um, I believe that's just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, I made this DVD at the beginning of April before all this happened in Baltimore, before Freddie Gray, any of that happened. At the beginning of April, I specifically named Baltimore in my DVD. I put it on uh, one of the slides in the presentation that there would be civil unrest in Baltimore specifically before any of this happened. And so a lot of people are starting to remark on that. Um, but I believe we're also going to see um, uh, 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 crime uh, increase in this country. I believe we're going to see food prices rise. I believe we're going to see dr more drought, more natural disasters, and we can get on, in, into that later on in the show about uh, the horrible natural disasters that I believe are coming. And then eventually, uh, I believe we're also going to see war in the Middle East, and eventually I believe we're going to see war here in the United States, and we can talk about that later in the show as well. So I kind of lay it all out, everything that I believe is coming to this country, why I believe it's coming to this country. I talk about things publicly that I've never talked about publicly before. I think the information is going to shock a lot of people um, because I kind of go deeper down the rabbit hole than normal. Normally, my articles are very much for a secular audience. For They're picked up by a lot of websites. So I, I And on the economic collapse blog in particular, I try to st stick with economic things, things that I can prove with numbers, with mainstream articles, that type of thing. In this DVD, I kind of go beyond what I normally address. But I think now is the time. I think now is the time to start warning people about what's coming because I believe it's almost here. Michael, I just wanted to get back to your comment about Baltimore. I'm just curious, uh, how exactly did you predict that? Like, what did, what did you what did you see happening at that time that made you think Baltimore would be an area of civil unrest like that? All right. Well, this is going to go down the rabbit hole a little <laughs> bit. Uh, well, first of all. You know, anyone can see that Baltimore, it's been kind of a, a, um, a, a cauldron of poverty, of uh, drugs, a lot of drug activity there, a lot of anger and frustration. Minority populations are being oppressed by police, so kind of the perfect conditions are already there for it. So in the natural, pretty much anyone can see that Baltimore is ripe for this kind of a thing. But then also... Uh, over the years, I've been a student of the prophetic. And what I mean by that is that I study men and women of God that receive visions and dreams of the future. Mm -hmm. and, and anyone can claim that, but I study people that have a consistent track record of accuracy, who have been given things and it's come to pass time after time after time. These are seasoned men and women of God. And I'm coming from a Christian perspective. But a, a, a number of them have seen these things coming to pass and specifically named Baltimore. And so that's why I specifically named Baltimore is because uh, of what I've learned over the years um, from these people that uh, I believe God still speaks and that uh, he's still speaking today. And, and these people have received these visions and dreams and revelations. And so uh, uh, the, that's uh, that's why I named Baltimore specifically. Cool. Well, um, I 
I think that's very uh, a very interesting uh, dimension to all of this, and I I think we'll get back to it a little later on. Um, on the subject, while we're on the subject of Baltimore, uh, you had a couple of articles, Michael, that um, that suggested, and we we discussed this a little bit in last week's show, how all of those events that we've been seeing are uh, on some level um, manipulations and how they may be serving uh, certain agendas. And uh, I was wondering if you could just give your take on some of the most important uh, things that suggest that uh, what we've seen in Baltimore with the riots are, you know, it's not necessarily um, as it seems. Yeah, and, uh, you know, before I get into some of those points, I wanted to make it clear, you know, Freddie Gray really did die. There was very real anger and frustration about that in the history of police brutality in Baltimore. So uh, without a doubt, much of the anger and frustration is very real. But as Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) Right. And I believe that might be what we saw in Baltimore, where – this thing happened and there was this anger and then all of a sudden the opportunists come in and all of a sudden people start working behind the scenes to kind of bring it to a a boiling point and use it for their own ends. And so what we do know is that uh, before public schools were let out on Monday, that Monday afternoon when the riots happened, there was a social media campaign. There was a concerted effort to really hype up what was called this purge among uh, high school students in particular that would happen at a particular place at a particular time. Then school was let out, and it's been reported in the mainstream media that public school buses, and, and, and they, were, they were not allowed to kind of disperse, but the buses were kind of brought into this one particular area, this one particular mall, and where students were let, let off. And you know, students would normally catch the trains to, to, to leave and, and to, to be dispersed throughout the cities. The trains were not allowed to leave. But instead, all these high school students were kind of herded into this one area, where this one mall where, where this purge had been hyped up. And waiting for them was a full complement of police dressed in riot gear, ready to confront them. And when the high school students arrived and started milling around, the police started coming toward them. Hmm. But once the rioting began and kind of started and sparked, the police pulled back. And uh, uh, police have gone on the record, they've gone on radio programs, and they've said that we were ordered by the mayor to stand down, to do nothing as the rioting, as the looting took place, as things went crazy. We were ordered not to confront the rioters not to take them down, but to let it go on. So this is police, Baltimore police, police who are actually there saying these things. So I found that to be very, very distressing. Another thing that I found to be very unusual was the police vehicles that were everywhere in the middle of the riot zone. You know, we had seen on Saturday night that conveniently right in the middle of the riot zone where the violence, where the the, the protests were taking place, there were these police cars conveniently parked right along the side of the street. The police that they belonged to were nowhere in sight. And so we saw police cars get smashed, set on fire. A lot of damage was done. That was Saturday night. So then fast forward to Monday, Freddie Gray's funeral. 
uh, that day, and the police had to know that their vehicles would be a major target. But what do we find? Right in the middle of the riot zone, right in the middle of where all the violence took place, there were even more police vehicles, police vans. Once again, uh, they were parked right along the side of the road, convenient where people could get at them. Once again, the police that they belonged to were nowhere to be seen, weren't protecting their vehicles. So we had these great images of police uh, cars and police vehicles being smashed, set on fire, being destroyed. And they went all over the world. But why were those police vehicles there and abandoned and allowed to be destroyed in the first place? I find that to be very, very curious. Yeah, we talked about that last week, and I think the conclusion we came to, or the only plausible explanation, was that they were bait. I mean, they were put there deliberately in order to create, uh, to, in order to provide images that could then be presented to the media in a certain way and go around the world in order to, to paint the, the demonstrations which turned riots in a particular light. Yeah, and, uh, and so I think the American people deserve some answers. First of all, about this mayor in Baltimore who ordered the police to stand down. I believe that if that's the, indeed the case, as all these police are alleging, she should immediately resign. But then there's a question of how close was, uh, she is to the Obama administration. We know that she had uh, dealings with them and had been close in the past, were there conversations between her and anyone in the White House as any of this was going on? And did the White House actually direct her to have the police stand down or, or to, to uh, take any actions or not take actions as all this played out? So I would love to know if the Obama administration was involved in any way mm-hmm. um, throughout this entire process. And, you know, coupled with uh, all of the kind of support, so-called support um, of NGO organizations that uh, George Soros has been behind in organizing uh, youth and, uh, and protest movements that on the surface seem really kind of well-intended, uh, but, but actually are in some ways feeding into this whole thing. And um, you had a very interesting uh, passage about uh, Malik Shabazz, who was the um, – uh, the former national chairman of the new Black Panther Party, who was also on hand at some point to say, shut it down if you want to, shut it down. So it it just seems as though there are all of these, uh, all of these forces um, that are coming from uh, all these different directions that are, are uh, helping to create uh, the perception uh, that, that's been uh, propagated in the mainstream media. And um, if on some level they are working together or along similar uh, tracks, I'm wondering if if you had any ideas as to uh, where all this is leading to. What what is the end game, if you will? Well, I think uh, we can uh, start to see a pattern by going back to Ferguson first. Ferguson, we saw kind of. The usual suspects rush in there, stir up all kind of dissension and strife and anger. It boiled over. Rioting started to take place. And then on Ferguson, if you'll remember, the, the worst night of rioting right at the beginning, the police were also told to stand down and held back. The buildings were set on fire. Things got out of control. Then what was the solution we heard? All over television, all our politicians were saying, bring in the National Guard. We need troops in the streets. They were brought into Ferguson. We had all those images of, of troops in the streets. 
A similar pattern just happened in Baltimore. Uh, things were really stirred up, boiled over. We had rioting and looting and smashing of police vehicles. The images went all over television. Everyone said, we need the National Guard. We need troops in the streets. The National Guard was brought in once again. That was seen as the solution. So now all of a sudden, whenever there's a crisis, whenever there's civil unrest, whenever something happens, what's the solution? Troops in the streets. We need the National Guard. So I think we're starting to see a pattern develop here, and that might be the end game where they want to get us accustomed to troops in the streets. They want us to get accustomed to thinking uh, martial law is the answer. And I think we're going to see both as we move ahead in, in future years, especially as economic conditions start to deteriorate. Because even now we've seen every, all over the country, there's always people that are ready to loot and riot and steal things and commit crimes. All they need is the opportunity. We saw that in Ferguson. We've seen this in Baltimore. And this is happening when economic conditions are still somewhat stable in this country. When things start getting really desperate, well, desperate people do desperate things. And I think we're going to really see that in the future in this country, where we're going to see lots of Fergusons and lots of Baltimores, and we're going to see civil unrest, rioting, looting, crime. But then in response to that, we're going to see a lot of uh, troops in the streets. We're going to see martial law in U.S. cities. Maybe not nationwide and certainly not immediately, but in specific cities, we'll see martial law and troops in the streets. And I think that there are perhaps some behind the scenes, some among the elite that really want to get us to get us accustomed to the idea of troops in the streets and martial law. Michael, you had a recent article that uh, you wrote that 96 percent of Americans expect more unrest this summer. That just is astounding. Yeah, I was uh, I was shocked when I saw that survey because what in the world can you get 96% of Americans <laughs> to agree on? You can't get 96% of Americans to agree that the sky is blue. So when this survey came back and said 96% of Americans expect more civil unrest this summer, that just blew me away. But at this point, it's so obvious that there's so much anger and frustration in this country, and for a long time it's been bubbling under the surface, but now it's coming to the forefront and people are upset, people are angry, and a lot of times it's for good reasons. We've had police brutality in this country. Police have been abusing their power. They've been uh, uh, doing horrible things. Um, and so in, in a, a large sense, there's a lot of reason for this anger and frustration. But, yeah, uh, the American people expect more of it. I expect more of it more this summer, but especially in the years ahead, especially as the economic crisis begins to unfold and people, they don't have any money in their pockets. They may not know where their next job is coming from, or they may not eventually even know where their next meal is coming from. You know, uh, when that happens, I think that what we're seeing today, like I said, it's just going to be the tip of the iceberg. And then talking about the uh, martial law and getting people accustomed to that, um, what is your um, speculation on the uh, <clears throat> subject of Operation Jade Helm? Well, Operation Jade Helm is supposed to be a military exercise, you know, mostly in the southwest United States. And, and there have always been military exercises, but uh, um, there's a couple things that kind of disturb me about about this particular exercise. One is that we've kind of seen this pattern over the years of exercises kind of mirroring reality a little bit too closely. In fact, you just mm -hmm. look at Baltimore, 
uh, a lot of National Guard troops in Baltimore had just been doing something called civil unrest training, and then all of a sudden, well, they can put it into use. Isn't that convenient? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've kind of seen this pattern over the years of exercises kind of becoming very close to or mirroring reality. And, and then the other thing is this map that was released of the, from the Jade Helm exercise, which labeled Texas and Utah as hostile territory which uh, kind of alarmed me a bit, bit, uh, especially in the context of what we've seen in in, uh, so many things under the Obama administration. I wrote an article some time ago in which uh, I talked about 72 types of potential terrorists, 72 types of Americans that have been labeled potential terrorists during the Obama administration, in which if you go to official U.S. government documents, whether they're military or from the, uh, the civilian side of the government, in which different types of Americans, patriots, uh, people who just love this country, um, conservatives, different types of Americans, returning veterans, are labeled as potential terrorists by their own government. And so in that context, this uh, Jade Helm uh, exercise in which uh, um, uh, military forces and, and, and some uh, – uh, three-letter agencies are going to participate as well. They're going to supposedly mix in among the general population and, and do these different things. Um, I don't think it's kind of the martial law takeover that a lot of people are freaking out that it is, but it, there are elements about it that are are disturbing. So um, I'm curious about um, how you see, you know, this uh, economic collapse unfolding uh, you know, will it be more localized events? Will um, you know? Will we see larger like stock market collapse? Um, you know, how do, how do you see that kind of progressing? Yeah, I believe that we are on the verge of a financial crisis, which is going to be even worse than the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. And you know, after after the last time, um, we were. Told what, what happened in 2008, we had this big problem with these two big-to-fail banks, right? And our politicians, everyone said, we're going to fix this problem. We're going to deal with the, these two big-to-fail banks, and we're going to make sure this never never happens again. Well, they didn't uh, do anything about it. In fact, these the four largest banks in the country have gotten uh, nearly 40% larger since the last time collectively, Meanwhile, 1,400 smaller banks have completely disappeared from the system. So the problem of too big to fail is now bigger than ever. We're more dependent on these banks than ever before. Um, the, the five largest banks in the country account for approximately 42% of all loans in this country, uh, and the six largest banks account for approximately 67% of all assets in our financial system. And everything in our system depends on the flow of credit and debt, whether it's buying a home, buying a car, going to college, our credit cards. Our whole economic system is depends on the flow of credit. And these big banks are kind of the heart of this system. It's there where the credit comes from. Uh, in fact, most of your listeners probably have a mortgage or a credit card or a car loan from one of these institutions. So the health of these institutions is so vitally important because without them, we basically don't have an, an economy. So, so you, you would think – oh, go ahead. Do you think that these uh, these banks will eventually just 
actually fail? I do. I do, and and uh, and there's a reason for that. These banks, you would think after the last time, they would say, you know, we kind of messed up last time. The government had to come in and help us out. We're going to, you know, change our ways. We're going to become a lot more careful because, you know, we realize how important to the system we are. Well, the exact opposite has happened. They've actually become far more reckless, far more wild. Basically, Wall Street has been transformed into the greatest casino in the history of the world, and and the and the heart of this gambling involves something called derivatives. And when I use that word, a lot of people start tuning out because that sounds very complicated, and they can be very complicated, very convoluted. Derivatives can be are can be so complex that a lot of people who even work in the financial industry don't understand them. But I like to break things down very very simply. At their heart. What derivatives are, at their core, they're basically just, some people compare them to insurance policies, but I compare them to bets, to side bets. For example, if I went down to Las Vegas and I bet the Chicago Cubs would win the World Series this year, well, either it would happen and I would win money, or it would not happen and I would lose money. Well, at their heart, that's what most derivatives are. They are simply, you're betting either something will happen or something won't happen. They're different from other kind of investments. For example, if you buy stocks, you're buying equity in a company, you're buying an ownership interest in a company. If you buy bonds, you're buying debt. You're buying the debt of a government or a company. Um, uh, So you're investing in something real, if you want to put it that way. But derivatives, you're not investing in anything real. You're just uh, speculating about whether something's going to happen or not happen. And so these big banks have become exceedingly reckless in terms of these derivatives. In fact, there are five out of the six too-big-to-fail banks that have exposure to derivatives in excess of $38 trillion. For example, let's talk about five of them, the, the five I'm, I mentioned there. The, the biggest one, J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest bank in America, has total assets of about $2.6 trillion, but they have exposure to derivatives of more than $63 trillion. Citibank has total assets of more than $1.8 trillion, but they've got exposure to derivatives of more than $59 trillion. Goldman Sachs, everyone loves to talk about Goldman Sachs. They have total assets of actually less than $1 trillion. Their exposure to derivatives is more than $57 trillion. Bank of America, total assets of $2.1 trillion, Exposure to derivatives, more than $54 trillion. And then Morgan Stanley is the fifth one. Total assets of less than a trillion dollars. Total exposure to these bets, these derivatives, of more than $38 trillion. So they're being insanely reckless. And these big banks, they use all these sophisticated computer algorithms and things which tell them what to do. And and most of the time, in normal conditions, they work really well and they make a, a lot of money doing what they do. But if we have a certain black swan events which come along, which really upset the apple cart, if, if markets start to move very, very wildly, if interest rates start to do things they're not supposed to do, then all of a sudden these bets can go bad very, very badly, and these banks can all of a sudden be, be in a massive amount of trouble. And a lot of times we don't hear about it until it's way too late, like with Lehman Brothers back in 2008. 
The problems were developing under the surface months in advance, but then all of a sudden one day we hear Lehman Brothers has failed, you know, and, and, it, and it set off panic all over the world, but the problems have been developing many months in advance. You know, as you were uh, describing the situation as it is and uh, reminding us of some of these numbers and the amount of exposure uh, that these big banks have to um, – derivative um, investments or gambling, you know, I, I couldn't help but, but think about the hubris, the arrogance, the short-sightedness of these individuals, and just just the sheer fact that, you know, if, if things should go bad uh, for them, things will go very bad for so many millions of other people, um, having learned the lessons of 2008. Or not, and uh, you know, on, on our show quite often, Michael, we um, we bring up the the subject of uh, psychopathy uh, because there's no other way to account for or explain uh, the the motivation, um, the the callousness, the the greed, the uh, lack of conscience involved with these these people that, that make Bernie Madoff look like a, a you know. <laughs> just the garden variety uh, con man in comparison. Um, so just, just some thoughts there about some of the things you were saying, because uh, we're, you know, we're, we're thinking about and, and, and subject to the wheelings and dealings of people who just don't give a hoot about many millions of people and, and what their short sightedness does and how it affects them. Yeah, it's extraordinary amount of greed, and we've set up such a system of perverse incentives. You know, that's why it was so dangerous to bail these guys out before, because we've sent a message to them saying, hey, if you make these bets and you go wild and you win, you win big, and you make an obscene amount of money and you live the high life, but if you lose, well, the government's going to come in and clean up the mess, and okay, maybe you have to go find a job with another investment bank. But, uh, you know, um, but, you know, you're going to be able to walk away and the government's going to be able to clean things up. So there's such more of an incentive to take the risks than to not take the risks. And so we actually uh, provide incentive to, uh, for this reckless behavior. But, you know, the, the financial crisis of 2008, the government stepped in. That was uh, relatively minor compared to what I believe is coming. And when you're talking about tens of trillions of dollars, the government doesn't have the kind of money to come in and clean up that kind of a mess. Keep in mind the entire U.S. national debt is only $18 trillion. So when you're talking about collectively, these six too-big-to-fail banks have $278 trillion of exposure to derivatives total, you're talking about an amount of money that is almost unimaginable. And it's the same thing over in Europe. For example, Deutsche Bank, the biggest bank in Germany, the biggest bank in Europe, they've actually got more exposure to derivatives than any U.S. bank. They've got $75 trillion of exposure. So this way, all over the world, you have these banks are walking this tightrope act. They're walking this high-wire act. Um, but at some point, these bets are going to start turning against them. And when that happens, I want your listeners, I want people to listen for derivatives. When they start hearing of a derivatives crisis, a problem with the derivatives on the news, 
well, we're going to see this financial crisis. We're going to see a stock market crash. We're going to see bonds go crazy. But we're also going to see a credit crunch. We saw this back in 2008, where all of a sudden, banks don't want to lend to each other or to businesses or to anyone else. All of a sudden, people can't get money. They can't get loans. They can't get loans for, the, for to buy homes or to buy cars or to do anything else. So I believe we're going to see an incredible credit crunch, an incredible credit freeze. All of a sudden, it'll seem like nobody has any money. So if you own a business or you're working someplace, you're going to notice customers aren't coming in. Customers aren't buying stuff. No, it's, it's going to seem like nobody has money to spend, and that's going to, and that'll very quickly precipitate, just like we saw in 2008, massive layoffs, millions of people losing their jobs. And because most of the country is living paycheck to paycheck, then we're going to see, just like in 2008, people can't pay their mortgage. Millions of people are going to start to lose their homes. People aren't going to be able to pay their bills. People are going to be, start defaulting on 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 uh, their debts, and it's, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. It's going to be a chain reaction, basically, just like we saw in 2008. But I believe this next time is going to be even worse, and I believe this is going to cause a very severe, although probably somewhat brief, period of deflation as there's as the flow of credit and debt in this country just totally freezes up. In response to that, it might be a matter of months or a couple of years. It just depends how fast the federal government and the Federal Reserve respond. I believe we're going to see massive money printing by the Federal Reserve, massive injection of money into the system. Um, and that down the road is going to cause the hyperinflation that so many have talked about and warned about. So I'm a little bit different from a lot of people who talk about economic collapse there's some people who believe we're right on the verge of hyperinflation. I don't believe that. I believe that this uh, credit crunch comes first, this period of sharp deflation. It might be very brief, but that comes first. And then later on, the response is going to cause tremendous inflation. On the topic of uh, paper money, you know, the uh, cashless society, that, that's kind of been in the uh, news lately a lot. Um, you know, I just saw that uh, Denmark – uh, that they were announcing that they were wanting to move uh, some of their industries to cashless um, basis. And, you know, I was kind of wondering, you know, what was your take on that? Is it that, you know, the banks are trying to prepare for, you know, this this collapse and that they're trying to hurt off the, from the um, these bank runs or, you know, what's going on there? Well, I think all over the world, uh, well, banks like a cashless system because that, forces us to participate in their system. You know, we just can't take our cash and put it in the mattress or, or whatever, but we've actually, to have a cashless system, we've got to have bank accounts. We've got to have, you know, we've got to participate in their system. So banks like it, but the governments like it because it gives them more control. They can watch us. They can track us. They can make sure taxes are being paid. They can crack down on crime, or they can just, uh, you know, interfere in our regular lives on whatever level they want to because they can see everything we're doing. There's so many things about a cashless system that governments really like. So, um, but right now we're not seeing a, a move to immediately ban cash, but we're seeing small steps in that direction. For example, in Italy and France, they they both, by law, put caps on the amount of cash you can use in a particular transaction. Um, so you can't go over a certain amount of euros and pay for something in cash. And they're saying, oh, we've got to 
prevent money laundering. We got to, you know, crack down on the drug dealers. They always have a good justification for it, but it's slowly but surely moving in the direction of outlawing cash. In the United States, we see, you know, uh, you know, with the IRS, you know, people. Um, people have gotten in trouble. People have gone to prison for something called structuring, for taking out cash a few thousand dollars at a time. And the IRS says, well, that's uh, just below our reporting limits. You're structuring. You're trying to avoid the re- reporting requirements where if you go over a certain amount, the amount of cash has to be reported by the bank to the federal government. So the IRS says, you're structuring. You violated, uh, violated the law. You're going to prison. A lot of these people, they don't even know they're what they're, they're, that they're doing it. They just run a cash business like a restaurant. There was an elderly woman in Iowa that got in big trouble over this. The IRS cracked down on her. There was a gentleman who ran a, uh, a uh, Christian ministry out in Florida. His name is uh, Kent Hovind. He's actually been in jail for uh, about nine years for doing this. He had no idea that he was doing this. He was just trying to pay the bills of his ministry, but he's been in prison for about nine years. He got in trouble for doing this just for taking his own cash out of the bank, and he didn't even realize what he was doing, but the IRS cracked down on him. So in so many ways, governments around the world are trying to discourage the use of cash. They're trying to – and, in fact, it's, it's kind of seeped into the culture. For example, if you go to a hotel and you pay for your hotel room in cash, they're going to look at you funny. And then the government's actually issued guidelines saying, you know, if people pay for a hotel room in cash – that might be a terrorist, so you might want to, uh, you know, see something, say something. You know, that's one of the things you want to look out for if people are paying for a hotel room in cash. So the use of cash is being – it's not against the law yet, but it's being kind of uh, discouraged step after step. Will they be able to, you know, enforce these measures uh, in time, you think, uh, you know, when things finally do go south? Or is that more uh, wishful thinking on their part? Well, I think they would like to eventually move us to a cashless society. I don't think we're going to get there before this next crisis because I actually believe, and I've not said this before, but I actually believe that we're going to see events greatly accelerate by the end of this year. Now, it's not going to be a single event. Some people say, Michael, you know, you you run the economic collapse blog. When is the economic collapse going to happen? As if it's kind of this big Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> it's going to happen all of a sudden, and it's going to be this big hyped-up event, and then it's going to be over real quickly, and then we're going to recover. Well, I don't see it that way. I see it as a series of waves, something that plays out over a period of time. And so I believe that things are going to start accelerating greatly by the end of this calendar year, but that's not going to be the end. That's only going to be the beginning of – a number of years of really bad stuff getting progressively worse, and we're going to see ups and downs and waves and response by the Federal Reserve and the federal government and governments all over the world. But it's it's going to take time to play out. But I believe by the end of this year, uh, things are going to start really accelerating. Um, and so I don't believe there's time for the elite to necessarily do everything that they want to do in terms of this cashless society and everything else. But there's certainly – uh, moving their agenda forward in, in so many different ways all around us. I would like to step into the rabbit hole a little bit more on this economic situation. Uh, you're mentioning about the banks being so so levered up with the uh, derivatives. It's just just mind-boggling, and it and because it's so high, it doesn't take like doesn't look like it would take very much of a black swan event to really 
cause a lot of problems, and it probably would be just a minor thing that could really set it off because they are so highly levered up. Now, part of the the thing is that the elites, uh, they're affectionately known as the empire of chaos. Now, sounds like um, with uh, Janet Yellen kind of putting out some feelers there of raising interest rates and uh, that could start per- precipitating some of the events that we might see, um, it sounds like that maybe chaos is something that the elites would really like to see in order to implement some of their their goals a lot quicker. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I totally agree with you. The elite, they love to create order out of chaos. And so kind of the philosophy of never letting a good crisis go to waste. And so, and often in times of emergency, they can get away with doing things we would never see in normal times. We saw this in Cyprus when the Cyprus, the whole Cyprus thing happened and all of a sudden they went in and they started taking money out of people's private bank accounts. You know, they could never get away with that in normal times. So, um, you know, I believe the elite often see crisis as an opportunity. And I think that we'll see that um, this next time around. Um, and I think, like you said, there's so many things which could set this off because these banks are on such a high wire act. And so when you're talking about these derivatives, you know, you've got derivatives related to the uh, – energy industry, and we've seen the price of oil, it went from more than $100 a barrel at at one point last year, then it's crashed down to uh, nearly half as much today. It's been, you know, now it's been fluctuating between $40 and $60 a barrel. There's been some ups and downs, but there's so many derivatives tied to the price of oil where a lot of these these, uh, shale oil companies, a lot of these producers, they go to these financial institutions and they say, you know, we want to lock in our, our profits for the next year or two years or whatever. And so they did this when the price of oil was $90 a barrel, $100 a barrel. Well, now that it's down to 50 or 60 fluctuating in this area, and those contracts come due, somebody's going to take a tremendous loss on those. So that's kind of a, a one kind of black swan event we've seen. Another is the wild swings in the uh, – foreign exchange markets we've seen with currency rates where the dollar has been rising like crazy, the euro has been crashing in general in, in recent months, and other currencies have moved wildly. Well, there's tens of trillions of dollars of these derivatives, which are tied to the value of the U.S. dollar, the euro, and other major currencies around the world. So that can really start upsetting uh, uh, derivatives. And then an even bigger one is interest rates. There are uh, uh, more more than $440 trillion of derivatives around the world that are tied to interest rates. So, and in re- just in h- recent days here, we started to see interest rates start to move all over the world. Uh, as we started to see a little bit of chaos in the bond markets. So if interest rates on, if interest rates start to move dramatically, that's something for people to look for. So, so many of these things can cause financial markets to start to go really, really crazy, which could set off a financial panic. Uh, and so, and then if that happens, the elite can step in and start to do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do. And I see a proverbial um, uh, thing with the chairs going on where uh, you have these, uh, the Russians and the Chinese uh, setting up their own uh, uh, international bank. But then you have the U.S. trying to set up the TTIP and TTP. It just sounds like the musical chairs are being uh being danced around and everyone's trying to make sure that they can grab a seat when the chaos happens. 
Yeah, um, and and uh, really at the heart of this is the you know kind of the future of the fi- global financial system. For decades, you know, we've had the petrodollar, and the U.S. dollar has been essentially the uh, primary reserve currency of the planet. All over the world, if you wanted to buy or sell oil, and, you know, it was almost entirely done in U.S. dollars. Or if uh, nations wanted to trade with one another, you know, if if uh, uh, the Argentine, uh, Ar- well, let's take Brazil. Brazil wanted to trade with South Korea. It was probably done with U.S. dollars in most instances. And so this has given us a tremendous advantage because the, the, it's created the tremendous demand for U.S. dollars all over the world and kept the U.S. dollar, the value of the U.S. dollar, higher than it would be otherwise. Um, and then... Uh, We've had all these countries all over the world, uh, especially the major exporting countries, which have stockpiled just tremendous mountains of our currency, which they've lent back to us at super low interest rates. And so that's worked out very well to us as our debt has exploded through the roof. Um, but, but so this has been really, really good for us to kind of be the, the, the center of the global financial system. It's raised our standard of living. We've been able to import things from overseas at super low prices. And we've been able to go to Walmart and dollar store and buy all these exported goods at ridiculous, ridiculously low prices. There's been so many benefits. But now what we're starting to see is a little bit of a decoupling. We're starting to see nations such as Russia and China start to take some steps away from the U.S. financial system saying, okay, we're going to start to set up our own things. We're going to start to become less dependent on the U.S. system. And this is particularly true with Russia. Because of the tensions over Ukraine and everything else, the Russians have pretty much decided that, hey, we're not going to want to have anything to do with the U.S. financial system anymore. They've imposed sanctions on us. The the Obama administration is coming against us. So we've got to completely go off and start doing our own thing. And Russia's turned to China, and that's why we hear about Russia and China doing things together so much, because Russia strategically is saying, okay, we're going to kind of – line ourselves up with China now, and totally move away from the United States. Well, this is a very dangerous thing because if Russia and China start to move away and then other countries start to say, okay, we're going to maybe do the same thing too, maybe start using the U.S. dollar yet less and start lining up with China and, 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 some of the, and Russia a little bit more, you know, if the rest of the country stops playing our game and stops using our currency – stops lending it back to us at super low interest rates, well, we're going to be in a, a whole lot of trouble very, very quickly mm-hmm. because um, just look at our national debt. You know, it's over $18 trillion today. If the average interest rate on our debt went back to historical average, um, which is about 6% somewhere in that neighborhood, we very rapidly would be paying – uh, uh, just over a trillion dollars a year just in interest on the national debt, which would be catastrophic. So it's imperative to us that the rest of the world continues to play our game, use our currency, and then lend it back to us at ultra-low interest rates, way below the rate of inflation, uh, so that we can finance our debt, so that we can do what we do. Because if they quit playing our game, then uh, things are going to completely fall apart for us. So um, you've mentioned a couple of, actually a, a number of different uh, events um, that are possible in terms of uh, crashing or going south. Uh, you know, you have derivatives, you have this huge amount of debt. 
uh, you know, there are other things. Uh, there's uh, market manipulation on precious metals uh, and a host of other things. Uh, you know, when I hear all this, I'm thinking about um, I'm thinking about such organizations like the Bank of International Settlements and probably other groups that are even less well known. And uh, I'm also thinking about uh, legislation like uh, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in the 90s um, under Richard Rubin and the Clinton administration. And considering the, the sheer number of, of different things that can and probably will go wrong, uh, it just seems like more than a coincidence. It, it seems like to me that there there are you know these guys in boardrooms uh, somewhere or, or hotel rooms in uh, Switzerland who may actually have some kind of um, uh, power uh, that may be kind of un- unthinkable to to most people to organize uh, these types of things um, on such a grand scale. You know, you, you said uh, that. Um, you know, order out of chaos and Rahm Emanuel's quote, never let a good crisis go unwasted. Uh, do you think that there, that these things are being orchestrated on that level? Is that possible? I think it is possible. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's so hard to, because we can't necessarily prove what's going on behind the scenes, but it's interesting that you mentioned the Bank for International Settlements. Most people don't realize that uh, I believe it's six times a year the central bankers from all over the world gather in uh, Basel, Switzerland at the Bank for International Settlements, and they hold these these kind of global economic meetings, uh, which happen, I believe, it's six times a year. They've been talked about in the Wall Street Journal, in which all the central bankers of the world get together, and they talk about what's going on, about what they want to do. Of course, these are closed to the public. You know, They're not even reported on, typically, in, in the mainstream media. But we do know that the, the central bankers, they get together, they gather, and they talk about things. Um, so what goes on at these meetings, what goes on behind the scenes, what, you know, the power that the elite have. You know, sometimes we can only speculate, but I believe it's very possible that things are being coordinated and, and uh, you know, um, and a lot of times we do see central banks kind of act in concert. On a certain day, all of a sudden, we see a whole bunch of central banks all uh, do, take a, a particular kind of an action all in concert. So there is a collusion, there is a these central bankers all over the world working together, and now how high up the food chain and, and what is the agenda behind the scenes, you know, we can speculate and guess at, um, but, uh, you know, it's certainly interesting to talk about. Well, you've mentioned, well, you've talked about a lot so far, the economic collapse, the, the stuff in Ferguson, the civil unrest. Um, getting back to your DVD, um, even just the title of it, The Economic Collapse, World War III and the Death of America. Uh, can you get into a bit on those second two ideas, the World War III and the Death of America? How do those tie in to the economic collapse? So, well, I guess, first of all, how do you see this World War III scenario playing out? Right. Well, I believe that World War III is kind of at the end of the uh, the timeline. Like I mentioned, I believe that we're on the verge of the next financial crisis, and that's going to lead, uh, lead us into this next economic collapse. I believe we're going to see unemployment 
go much higher than what we saw during the last recession. I believe that we're going to see, like I said, we're going to see millions of people lose their homes, and, and, and we're going to see the anger, more anger, more frustration, more civil unrest in our cities, and I believe we're going to see protests in Washington, D.C. I believe we're going to see governmental shaking. I believe we're going to see, you know, people are really gearing up for 2016, and they're, and they're thinking it's going to be a typical election cycle. I believe by the time we get to the next election, things are going to look dramatically different. I believe we're about to see uh, some big-time shaking in our government. I believe that we're going to see some corruption uncovered. I don't know what it is, or I would tell you, but I believe we're going to see some some huge controversy, some huge uh, – we're going to see some uh, uh, political figures uh, just really get shaken up. I believe we're going to see some resignations. Um, it's also – I believe we're also uh, moving into a time of, of – uh, um, uh, great instability in this country and in a lot of other ways. I believe we're going to see increased uh, Islamic terror inside the United States and, and a lot of really bad things. And we can talk about the earth changes that I believe are coming now at the end of the timeline. And you mentioned World War III. This has been something I've been warning about for a long time. And for a long time, people kind of laughed at me or people that thought, what in the world are you talking about, Michael? War with Russia who cares about Russia? Russia is our friends. Don't you know the Cold War is over? You know, don't you know that the, the, the Russians love us now? Well, you know, not as many people are laughing as uh, anymore because we've got this whole situation in Ukraine. And even though most Americans don't care that much about what's going on in Ukraine, the Russian people care very much about what's going on in Ukraine. In fact, one recent survey found that negative opinion of, uh, of the United States inside Russia is now higher than at any point was even during the Cold War. It's over 80% negative toward the United States from the Russian people. So why are they so negative about us right now? Well, Ukraine is right at the center of it, and I want to kind of paint a scenario for you. Imagine what would happen if uh, up in Canada there was a democratically elected government and then the Russians came in and they organized, they funded, they advised, and they helped protest movements which were against this government up in Canada. And uh, these protest movements actually became so powerful that they violently overthrew the government up in Canada and set up their own government. And, and then after that, uh, the Russians said, okay, we're going to immediately recognize this new government as the legitimate government of Canada. We're going to start sending them money and assistance. And then eventually the Russians decided to send military assistance to help that new government in Canada fight against people who are loyal to the old government. Well, here down here in the United States, Canada's our most important neighbor, and they're right to the north of us. We would be screaming, Red Dawn, Red Dawn, the Russians are coming, the Russians are invading. Look what they're doing up in Canada. Well, it's the same thing over in Russia because Ukraine is right next door to Russia. They have uh, ties that go back for thousands of years between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, used to be part of the Soviet Union. And so to the Russians, what is going on in Ukraine strikes at the very heart of their national security and of their national interests. 
So for the United States to have gone in and organized and trained and advised and helped the the protest movements over there in Ukraine, stirred them up, helped them, uh, and then, and it just wasn't our government doing it, but it was organizations tied to George Soros. We mentioned him earlier. It's funny how he's involved in so many of these things. Mm-hmm. Organizations with uh, ties to George Soros were helping these groups. They they they've been stirring things up in Ukraine for years, and they were but they actually helped these groups that violently overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine, set up a new government. The United States government immediately said, "Yep, that's the legitimate government of Ukraine," and and then actually started giving them money and helping them. But then what happened is a lot of people in uh, uh, East Ukraine started fighting back, and the civil war erupted, which our government. Uh, that certainly didn't count on. And so this civil war started taking place, and then a funny thing happened. The the rebels started to win and started to take ground and started advancing, and they'd been advancing for months, and they they took quite a bit of territory. And so now our government's saying, whoa, we didn't want this. We didn't – this isn't supposed to happen. And so we've already sent in non-lethal military aid, and now the U.S. House of Representatives has, has voted just recently here, just in the past, in recent days, for lethal military aid, $200 million, and uh, they're putting pressure on the Obama administration. They want Obama to do something, and I believe Obama is going to do something, actually. That's something to watch for, where Obama's going to agree and actually increase the amount by the time it's all said and done, the amount will be increased, and we will send lethal military aid into Ukraine. And once that happens, that's crossing a major red line for the Russians. That's essentially declaring a proxy war with Russia. Because Russia, of course, is supplying the other side. They're funneling in weapons and supplies and help. And uh, uh, soldiers are coming in from Russia, whether with or without the official sanction of the Russian government, they're coming in. Because they want to help the, the 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 people in the east who are pro-Russian, you know, fight against this new government who they regard as fascists in Kiev. Um, but by helping the other side, the new government in Ukraine, it's essentially going to be a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And Russia is really really upset about this. And if you watch Russian television or you read their articles or you listen to what they're talking, heads are saying. Over in Russia, they openly talk on national television about the inevitable war that's coming between the United States and Russia. In fact, one of their most important talking heads, kind of like, you know, on CNN, they have these guys like David Gergen that come on and tell us what to mm-hmm. think. Well, they have the same thing in Russia. And they're, they're one of their most prominent guys, the guy, he's actually known as Putin's brain because he's, he's philosophically behind so much of what we – of, of, of what we're seeing over there today in Russia. Well, he came on national television, and he actually calls the United States the kingdom of Antichrist. Now, he kind of, they kind of have a different idea of what that is than we do, but that's how they view us. They view us as the great evil in the world, and that Russia is inevitably going to have to fight a war with us. But that's their mindset now. That's where they're at. And so I don't believe it's coming, certainly not this year or immediately in our immediate future, but down the road, I believe that there is going to be, I mean, we, we definitely right now have a new Cold War, and when this lethal military aid goes to Ukraine, I believe a lot of bad things are going to start to happen. It's not going to seem like Russia is going to be behind them, but they will be, and, and there's going to be all these things going on behind the scenes where Russia is going to try to hurt us and we're going to try to hurt them. 
But eventually, I believe down the road, not immediately, but down the road, I believe this is going to lead to a literal shooting war between the United States and Russia. How do you think the I mean, at the beginning of the show you mentioned war in the Middle East? How do you see that fitting in at all with the situation with Russia? Are those two separate issues, or will that connect in some way? Yeah, I believe that we're going to see war in the Middle East before we see this World War Three. But I believe that um, it will certainly make tensions with Russia much higher because mm-hmm. already in the Middle East. We've been wanting to overthrow Assad in Syria, and of course he's a very important Russian ally. So that was even before the situation in Ukraine, where this whole thing with Syria had really upset the Russians and increased tensions. So yeah, I believe we're going to see war in the Middle East, and I believe that I believe what may precipitate that is a strike by Israel of Iran's nuclear program. I believe that will set off all kinds of bad things, and I believe eventually we'll see a major regional war between Israel and her neighbors, and I believe that, of course, will increase tensions between the United States and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, But I believe that comes before this World War III, the shooting war between the United States and Russia. But, yeah, um, so as you can imagine, and then, of course, that would, you know, any type of war in the Middle East is going to make uh, economic th- uh, conditions and, and the price of oil, that will shoot that all over the place. And so all of these things are going to kind of roll in together into kind of a perfect storm, if you will, of just tremendous chaos, I believe, uh, over the uh, second half of this decade. Uh, we've been seeing a tremendous amount of propaganda uh, against Russia, outright lies that um, contradict the, the narrative you used to explain how we would feel if Russia had been uh, supporting a government in Canada that was uh, anti-U.S. Do you or are you seeing um, any kind of movement on the part of uh, more people uh, who may be becoming aware that it's in fact the U.S. that's been behaving aggressively and, and kind of seeing through the lies against Russia? I think so. I think we are starting to see more people start to understand these things, although I think it's still definitely not a majority of the U.S. population. You know, the majority of the U.S. population, they're so plugged into the propaganda matrix where um, one recent study found that, uh, well, it was a survey, they found that the American people spend an average of 10, about 10 hours a day plugged into some type of electronic device, whether it's television with your movies and your uh, television shows or listening to the radio or the internet or their mobile phone. When you add all of it up, it's about 10 hours a day on average. And then about 90% of the news and information and entertainment that we get from our uh, televisions, through the movies, through the video games, through uh, publishing houses, through our magazines, you add it all up, about 90% of it is controlled by six gigantic media corporations, which, of course, in turn are owned by the elite. And the elite, of course, are constantly putting out this pro-Western, pro-American propaganda. And, of course, on the Russian side, they're doing the same thing. And most people want to fall in one or two camps. They want to say one side is the good guys or the other side is the good guys. Well, 
my perspective is I try to take a more realistic viewpoint in saying that, hey, you know, both sides are doing some bad things here. You know, both sides are not necessarily the good guys, and I try to point that out. But most people, they want to take one side or the other and say, they're the bad guys, these are the good guys, and so that's how we're going to frame it. But often when I'm looking at some of these conflicts and things that are going on around the world, I say, you know what, both sides are bad. And so uh, now one side might be badder than the other, or one side might be guiltier than the other, but that doesn't make the other side necessarily good. And so that's how a lot of times I approach it. Now, with all these uh, increasing tensions and, you know, we can kind of see, you know, the the powers that be are, are aligning, you know, these plans uh, and setting them in motion. And, you know, we mentioned uh, the earth changes uh, a few times already. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that, you know, well, as we see, you know, this escalation, at the same time, we're seeing, you know, the uh, earth changes escalate as well. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering if uh, that might throw uh, a wrench in their plans. Yeah, and it's certainly something that the elite cannot necessarily predict. Um, but uh, I believe, and I've written about this for uh, quite a while, but we're seeing an acceleration of this recently. I believe that uh, the, 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 our planet itself is becoming increasingly unstable, and I know that this is talked about on your website quite a bit, mm -hmm. where we're seeing these earth changes and these things start to happen. And I believe we're going to see some natural disasters coming up, which are going to be absolutely unprecedented. But already, already right now, and I wrote about this just recently, there are more volcanoes erupting right now than the entire uh, average for an entire year during the 20th century. In other words, the, the 20th century's entirely yearly average, the average for a whole year of volcanic eruptions, that's being surpassed by the number of volcanoes that are erupting right now. Of course, we had that huge volcano which just uh, erupted down in Chile. One in Japan that has not erupted in 800 years is billowing smoke. People are very concerned about that. We just saw the massive earthquake that just hit Nepal. But then also we're starting to see all kinds of things happen in the United States. In fact, just, just over the past few weeks, we've seen significant earthquakes in Michigan, in Texas, in Mississippi, in Idaho, in Washington, in California. We've seen L.A. and San Francisco both hit by significant earthquakes. So a lot of people are starting to say, what in the world is going on? Well, like you said, we do tend to cover that stuff a lot on SOT, and one of our perspectives and the things that we the thing that we try to do we've you know we've published several focus articles on it and even a few books is to show um to kind of try to make it understandable or to pr try to provide a context for people when hearing about these things because um when we look back and you know we've we've researched this a lot and look back in history we we tend to see that these things have happened before even if um even if it's not common knowledge, and um, but the, there's kind of a, a weird aspect too that that uh, comes out when you look at these things, and it it tends to it seems that when you look at this historical record and when when these um, nat, uh, natural disasters and catastrophes um, they tend to cluster around specific periods of time. Um, there are a few 
uh, researchers into these topics like Victor Klub and Mike Bailey, and they look back at history and they they find that there seems to be a, a correlation between, um, let's say, cometary bombardments. So when comets and asteroids just tend, they're ten, they tend to cluster and um, and come to and basically bombard the Earth at at certain intervals, and that tends to destroy civilizations. Now, it always happens to be that these civilizations or empires are what we'd call evil empires. And so there's just this, this strange aspect to it that we see this increase on the planet of what, you know, what I'd call just plain evil in the form of uh, leaders and governments and elite groups that wield an enormous amount of control over people and malevolent control and, you know, along with stupidity. And then... Out of, out of nowhere, uh, you know, the, the skies have been quiet. The planet has been relatively quiet for, for years, generations, to the point where people are, have gotten used to it. And then the planet just seems to explode. And it seems like, to us, to me at least, that's what's happening now. We see just unprecedented, unprecedented numbers of natural disasters and things just going crazy on the planet. We've got the phenomenon of sinkholes, which just kind of came out of nowhere in the last 10, 20 years. And now there's, you know, daily reports of these massive sinkholes just opening up everywhere across the planet. We've got the volcanoes, we've got earthquakes, and we've got uh, a huge increase in the sightings of fireballs in the skies. So all of a sudden, you know, it used to be that you saw a massive fireball and it was a once-in-a-lifetime event. Now you still see when these are reported in the news, the, the reporters reporting on them say, oh, once-in-a-lifetime event, and the next day you see another one and another one, and they happen all over the place. And we've even documented a few times where you've had these once-in-a-lifetime events happening over, like, the same city in a period of a year. And it, it's so, well, it just seems that there's something going on, and I just find it pretty strange. How, how do you see, like, what's going on on the planet at the moment? Oh, I completely agree with everything that you just said. Yeah, the sinkholes, it's been something that I've been mentioning from time to time in some of my articles over the past few years, where these gigantic sinkholes just opening up, swallowing entire houses, they're just becoming incredibly large in size all over the planet. And people are just saying, oh, that's normal, that happens. But no, this isn't normal. You know, this is very unusual, uh, you know. Or, you know, the earthquake activity increasing, the volcanic activity increasing. And you you mentioned, uh, you know, comets or, or uh, asteroids. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I just want to mention something right here, and people can take it for what it's worth, but there are a lot of what are called seers, or, or if you want to call them prophets, people all over the world. My wife has actually collected more than 90 of these, people having dreams and visions, of a meteor, an asteroid, coming down and hitting in the Atlantic Ocean, causing a giant tsunami which washes over uh, the eastern, the east coast of the United States. And so people have been getting these visions, these, if you want to call them premonitions, if you want to call them dreams, uh, um, uh, waking visions, whatever you want to call them, of this this meteor, um, sometimes people have seen one hit down, sometimes people have seen three hitting uh, into the Pacific Ocean and causing not just a tsunami like we saw in Japan, but what 
consistently all over the world, people have seen a massive wall of water hundreds of feet high sweeping over the East Coast, uh, hundreds of feet high and going many miles inland, Mm -hmm. causing massive death and destruction. And considering the fact, for example, the state of Florida is almost entirely flat, much of it is just either barely above sea level or a a good bit of it is actually below sea level, there there would be nothing to stop such a wave from coming in and sweeping uh, very, very far. Actually, when you're talking about Florida, across the entire state potentially. But that's one of the natural disasters that I believe that is coming Mm -hmm. uh, to this country. And it's something that not just a few, but like I said, my wife has collected more than 90 of these. And... Again, like I mentioned, when we, when we look at the historical record, uh, we've done some research into into this, obviously, but um, about 12,000 years ago, something very similar happened um, across the you know, eastern United States where, you know, looking at the, the, the geological record and just a, a range of different types of evidence, what looks like happened back then was, um, well, a number of probably a giant, you know, asteroid or comet basically exploded in midair and just pelted the the United States with um, basically like mini bombs, mini nuclear bombs, and it just destroyed a whole uh, a whole section of the United States. And um, and of course there there was there were probably tsunamis involved then too. So just to give people some perspective that this kind of thing has happened before, and and, and so I wouldn't dis you know um, I wouldn't discount the idea of uh, you know premonitions or things like that. I mean, that's something that we we kind of talk about too. Um, from a more um, we usually talk about it more from a I wouldn't necessarily call it a secular perspective, but um, you know we have we've talked various times uh, on the show about just aspects of parapsychology and just you know what people um, would consider weird, but um, you know a lot of people discount it. But I think there's a lot of evidence that that yeah the, there is something to it and. Um, you know, it's it's hard to uh, either prove or um, verify a premonition, you know, until it happens, of course. So it's it's something to take with a grain of salt, but to but to take seriously in the sense that um, that these, you know, when you when you hear something like this, to see, well, is this possible? You know, what are the signs that something like this might be happening or might be coming? And you know, should I take this seriously? And I think you know, all signs say yes in the case of this. Yeah, and, uh, you know, with our planet becoming increasingly unstable and, and uh, the the area around our planet, as we've mentioned, it seems to get, be getting busier. It seems like more objects are coming past us and into our neighborhood in this air, uh, uh, in our area of space more than ever before. It seems like things are becoming more frequent. It's something to be concerned about because today in the United States today, Approximately 39% of all Americans live in counties that directly border a shoreline. So mm-hmm. that's you're talking East Coast, you're talking West Coast, and of course Alaska, Hawaii. But you know, the West Coast, of course, we've got the whole ring of fire starting to wake up all over the world. And at some point, the West Coast is going to be affected as well. So that's one shoreline. The other shoreline, of course, is the East Coast. And you know, this is a very what, what I've been talking about is a very real possibility. In fact. Let me give you a quote from the Washington Post. Quote, 
there are scientifically sound reasons for concern that at some point a mega tsunami could engulf the entire East Coast with a wave almost 200 feet high, sweeping everything and everybody up to 20 miles inland. That is from the Washington Post. So these things uh, can happen. They have happened before in history. They tell us that it will happen again. We've been very fortunate. Things have been very quiet for such a long time, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. But uh, but without a doubt, uh, you know they 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 can potentially happen, and I believe that they will happen. You know, I'm a myself. I'm skeptical by nature. I was, of course, trained as an attorney. I was taught. To if someone tells you something, well, show me the evidence. You know, I, I want the proof. You know, uh, I'm I'm very much a, a show me person. Show me. Just don't tell me. Explain to me why something is true. And so, you know, I've been talking about some weird things on this program, but uh, that's one of the reasons why I did the, the uh, this new DVD. That's why the, one of the reasons why I document things on my website so carefully is because. I'm not just pulling these claims out of thin air, but these are things I've carefully investigated for years and that I found to be true or accurate or have a very good reason for coming to my conclusions. And so if anyone has any questions about these things, please feel free to contact me, write to me, whatever, because I've discovered that some very, very frightening things are coming to this country, and, uh, and I'm trying to warn people. Uh, along these lines... Uh, you had a recent article, which I've seen uh, republished many places, including SOT, uh, signs the elite are preparing for something big. And you mentioned a few things uh, there that were interesting. And one was that the New York Federal Reserve was transferring personnel to Chicago and building up its satellite office there just in case of a natural disaster. Um and, of course, there's also the fact that NORAD is moving back into Cheyenne Mountain um, because it's EMP or electromagnetic pulse hardened or protected. Uh, so, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, it's kind of a, an obvious thing that the elite are aware of these things on some level or, or why would they take such measures uh, to to move the New York Federal Reserve, which has been in New York for what ninety years? Yeah, why do they? Why are they taking such an effort? Where if something happened, they could run basically all their operations from Chicago, and and they say it's for a natural potential natural disaster. Well, what natural disaster would hit New York? There's not any volcanoes that I know of to really be concerned about up there. New York's not really known for earthquakes. Now, if we did have an East Coast tsunami, that would be something to be concerned about. Um, and so, but yeah, it seems very, very weird. And then, like you mentioned, with uh, NORAD moving back into Cheyenne Mountain, you know, EMP, the EMP threat is something that I've been concerned about for a long time. And it can be caused, you know, of course, by a nuclear device being exploded high up in the atmosphere. But people, a lot of people don't realize that the sun could cause something very, very similar. In fact, just here over the past couple of years, we've had a couple near misses where we almost had another what's called a Carrington event, um, which, you know, Carrington event, you know, happened, uh, you know, 
a, a long time ago, and back then, about the only electronics that it fried were, you know, the telegraph system. We really didn't have much at, at that time. But if a similar event happened today, it would cause all kinds of chaos because we are extremely dependent on our computers, our electronics, our satellites, our you know, everything is, is on computer. Everything is, re, it relies on electronics, on electricity, on, on everything else. And if we are hit by a massive solar storm just right, you know, it could potentially uh, knock much of the country back into the 18th century uh, pretty, pretty quickly. And, and, and recovering from that, would they say, would take an extended period of time potentially. Incoming uh, space rocks could also cause EMP pulses as well. Mm, that's a very mm-hmm. good point. Yeah, there's actually, I'm looking for a quote right now. Uh, I mentioned Victor Klub. Um, he, 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 this is what he wrote. Uh, this was in a paper, uh, a report commissioned by the U.S. Air Force, um, kind of on the, the threat to uh, comets or asteroids. And I think this was from, you know, I can't remember the year, if it was 1990 or so. Uh, but he said, we do not need the celestial threat to disguise Cold War intentions. Rather, we need the Cold War to disguise celestial intentions. So we've brought up this quote, you know, several times on SOT because in in the past several years, uh, we've seen the, the the concept of EMP weapons discussed numerous times in the you know in the mainstream media, and we've also had several. Just strange things that have happened um, in several countries, including the United States, like like mysterious explosions, um, strange uh, sonic booms that can't be you know identified with with anything apparently, and you know so to us it kind of seems like that uh, we we have had this increase in fireballs. We've also we've probably also had an increase in these overhead explosions. Um, kind of like a, uh, what happened in Chelyabinsk, Russia. Um, when was that? Like two years, three years ago? Uh, two years ago, I think. And th- I think this phenomenon is more common than people think, where with the, just these like tiny space rocks will basically explode in the air. You'll get a, uh, a sonic boom. But um, depending on the size and the you know the proximity, these things do throw off an EMP, and that. And so this was the context that that Victor Klub was talking about uh, in his book um, Cosmic Winter he he and his co-author start the book with a with just a scenario of i think two or three um you know good-sized uh comet fragments exploding in midair over the, i think it was over the United States and basically triggering uh, a nuclear war because these things were mistaken as you know the first first strike of a of nuclear weapons because the the signal would would be essentially the same you've got this massive explosion you've got EMPs that uh, you know take out all the electronics in the region and so it, like Ilan you were saying that uh, about these um, the the move of the Federal Reserve and back, and NORAD back in Cheyenne Mountain that on some level, and it's well at some level, it seems that there are some people that are aware of uh, of these natu- the threat of these natural disasters that you know some big things are coming. I think they're also aware of the the threat posed from um, from you know the threat from the sky, and like Victor Klub said, it's very easy to to use that to your own advantage. You can um, you know it, it could trigger a war or 
But at the same time, there seems to be some covering up going on where whenever something happens that you know might very well be a phenomenon of this sort, there are mundane explanations for it. So there's the threat of EMP weapons, but no one ever mentions the threat of just something falling out of the sky that we have no control over. So again, I just think there's some some weird stuff going on there, and probably, I mean, like I said, we've written about it, but it could probably be explored a lot more. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's very few people working on it because it just isn't a topic that seems to be brought up in the in the mainstream academic journals or media or governments. Yeah, and another thing that, you know, uh, uh, very few people are kind of looking at, but I'm concerned about, is this giant ball of fire that our planet revolves around <laughs> called the sun, you know? Uh, I don't know. Most people haven't really noticed or aren't really too concerned, but our sun is really starting to behave quite erratically over the last few years. Mm -hmm. There have been times when it's gotten really, really quiet. In fact, one scientist recently came out and said that solar activity is declining faster than at any time in the last 9,300 years right now. And so that's a concern. But then at other times, it's unleashed these just violent storms, these violent solar storms, so the sun is becoming really erratic, behaving strangely. It's becoming a lot less predictable. And considering that all life on the planet, our climate, and everything else depends on this giant ball of fire, I would be concerned about what's going on in the sun. And I'm not an expert in this field, but uh, even I can see that, hey, something's going on. Something's funny. This, this is not normal activity. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we might have to just send you um, one of one of our sought editors, Pierre Lescaudron. He's written a book on Earth changes. If you haven't heard of it or if you haven't seen it, uh, we'll make sure to send you a copy of it because yeah, he t he talks about all this stuff in there. We've, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the sun because that is that's one of the main points in his book that he talks about a lot. And the sun is doing a lot of strange things and behaving in strange ways. And um, yeah, I think. For yourself or, or listeners who just haven't read the book yet, I'd, I'd recommend che uh, checking it out. It's called Earth Changes and the, hum and the Human Cosmic Connection. So, yeah, just a little plug for Pierre there. Oh, I'd love to check it out. Yeah, because this is something, this is an area that I am, I, I love to learn more about and I, I, I love to uh, get into. Um, you know, another uh, area in terms of earth changes, if we want to talk about, I probably should mention, because this is one that I write about almost more than any other, is the New Madrid Fault. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, you know a, a lot of Americans don't realize that the worst earthquakes in the low, lower 48 states in recorded history were along the New Madrid Fault, not out in California, which goes to kind of right down the, uh, the, the, the center of the country. Um, but uh, it's, it's been quiet, it's been dormant for a very, very long time. It's been starting to wake up in recent years, and in part, at least, due to all this fracking and all this activity, which has caused all these earthquakes in the middle part of the country. But one more thing that I talk about in my DVD, and that so many of these seers have seen, gotten visions and dreams and other things of, is a massive earthquake right in the middle of the part of the country and which is actually going to divide this country essentially in half and create a new body of water stretching from the Great Lakes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. 
And as you can imagine, such an earthquake is going to cause death and devastation beyond what uh, most of us could possibly imagine. So we've been talking about a lot of heavy uh, topics here, um, you know, economic collapse and the mass riots and protests, potential famine and you know, natural disasters. So when we were faced with all this, is there, um, you know, what what can we do? Uh, you just uh, co-written a book, uh, Get Prepared Now. Um, maybe can you can go into some of those issues of, you know, how can people – uh, prepare themselves for you know what we're what we're starting to face. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because as the you know as the publisher of the Economic Collapse blog, people are coming to me or writing to me all the time and saying, Michael, uh, you know I, I can see and understand you know uh, uh, you know the problems that are on the horizon. So I want to get prepared. My fa- I want to get my family prepared. What can I do? And so, you know, I answered the question so many times, I figured, well, I, I might as well write a book about it. So I teamed up with a, uh, a woman named Barbara Fix, who had previously written a, another book along these lines, and, and she's an expert on things like uh, food storage, of, of uh, water storage, of purifying water, of uh, heating and lighting and sanitation in emergency situations, gardening during a long-term crisis, all these things that she writes about that she's really an expert on. And then what I contributed is a lot of the why the crisis is coming, you know, and, and a lot of things we've talked about on this show. So we kind of have the whys and then the hows in, in the book together. But I believe, you know, a lot of people call me a doom and gloomer. And we've talked about some real hard things in this show, a lot of heavy things. And I do believe that we're entering into a time which is going to be the worst time in the history of the United States, worse than the Great Depression, even worse than the Civil War. And a lot of people say, well, that's bad news. You're a doom and gloomer, but I don't see it that way. You know, I believe that uh, there's hope in understanding what's coming and there's hope in getting prepared. Because who are the people that are really going to freak out? Who are the people that are going to be jumping off of buildings, jumping in front of trains, giving into depression and despair, totally giving up on life? When the economy starts crashing, all these weird things start going on all around us. It's going to seem like their lives are over. It's going to be the people that are unprepared, who haven't done anything to prepare, who don't understand why these things are happening, had no idea that they were coming, and now it seems like their lives are over. Those are the people that are going to be freaking out. Those are the people that are going to be giving in to doom and gloom. But people that have been empowered by saying, okay, we see what's coming. We're getting prepared. We're going to find a way for me and my family to get through this. We're going to have a plan. We're going to make it through. And not only that, we're in the midst of all the chaos and in the midst of all the hardship, because there's going to be so many people in great need, People that are prepared are not only going to be able to take care of themselves and their families, they're going to be able to help others. They're going to be able to reach out and be a light and in their communities, other people in their family who need some help, they're going to be able to make a difference in the hard times that are coming. So they're going to be able to take care of themselves and potentially others as well. So I think that that there is – that my message, what I'm trying to do, is a message of hope. And so – and get prepared now. I encourage people to 
prepare financially for what's ahead, to build up an emergency fund, because when the next crisis comes, you're going to have to pay your bills. You don't want to be living paycheck to paycheck. I talk about gold and silver and precious metals, which I love for the long term. In the short term, we're going to have ups and downs. It's going to be a roller coaster ride, which I've always said, but in the long term, I love them. I talk about storing food and supplies. You're not going to need them immediately, but down the road, you will need them. Um, and I talk about uh, um, um, so many of these things in terms of getting more independent from the system, because the system is failing. Anyone that counts on the government to save them, the system to save them, that's relying on uh, kind of uh, the system in general, they're going to be greatly disappointed in what's coming. We need to take control of our own destiny. We need to get prepared. We need to do whatever we can to be independent um, because when uh, things start going crazy, the government's not going to swoop in to save you, that's for sure. Yeah, they'll try to set things up where we are completely dependent on them. And, you know, when you look at uh, most Americans or even, you know, to a large extent, uh, just Western society, you know, how how prepared are, you know, is the average Joe and you know, they just like under like learning and knowing, you know, basic survival uh, skills, and you know, it just seems that we're so far gone uh, from, you know, even 40 years ago, when you know people it was, it was just a common practice to have you know a pantry with stores of food for for the winter, and you know, there's none of that now, and you know, you just you kind of cringe at the thought of you know what the average person is going to be going through. Yeah, uh, uh, my grandparents were that way. They had lived through the Great Depression, and they always had a pantry of food. They always had supplies on hand because that was their mindset. They had been through that. But now most Americans have never been through something like that in their lifetimes. In fact, they, you know, most people are even kind of forget, uh, forgetting about the crisis of 2008, and they've been lulled into this false sense of security. They're thinking, oh, everything is uh, – going to be okay. You know, we can get back to normal, if you will. You know, and I think that's a tragic mistake. And so, you know, today, you know, you look at the fact that uh, less than one out of every four Americans has enough money stored away to cover six months of expenses. That's less than one out of every four. You know, you've got about half the country, uh, Surveys, some surveys have found more than 60% are living paycheck to paycheck. You know, they're counting on their, they'll always, their job will always be there. Somehow they'll always be able to, you know, keep the money rolling in. Today, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 49% of all Americans live in a home that gets direct monetary benefits from the federal government each month of one nature or another. So, so many people are already dependent on the government. And then in terms of what people have in their homes, in terms of basic supplies, one survey found that. 44% don't have any first aid kits, 48% don't have any emergency supplies, 53% do not have a minimum three-day supply of non-perishable food and water. Um, And so, you know, when you're talking about this kind of level, if you're talking about a major emergency, whether it's an economic collapse or an EMP event which knocks out uh, communications or some type of great natural disaster or the list goes on and on and on, if something major and big happens, most of the, at least half the country, if not more, they'll be out of luck in just a matter of days where they, 
you know, need to go to the store to get food or water or whatever it is. So, yeah, the, the lack of preparation for any kind of emergency in this country is absolutely appalling. You mentioned uh, gold and silver before. Do you have a, a preference between the two? I do, and and people debate this. Some people like gold better, and I like both of them for the long term, but I absolutely love silver uh, for the long term. I think it's ridiculously underpriced and undervalued right now, and I believe that um, before it's all said and done, it's actually going to hit the triple digits. It's going to go over the $100 mark uh, now, of course, not immediately, not right away, but down the road. So gold is great, but uh, historically, the ratio between gold and silver has been a lot higher. What I mean by that is it's been a lot closer. In other words, um, the price of gold has been uh, proportionally a lot closer to the price of silver. R right now, is right, the price of silver is so low compared to the price of gold, it just makes silver really, really attractive. And then silver, unlike gold, silver is used in literally thousands of consumer applications. So it's constantly being used up. The supply is getting smaller. It's being used in products that we actually use. And so uh, that over time is going to create a supply crunch as it's used in so many products that we use, um, unlike gold, which is too expensive to use typically in most things. And so that's another thing that silver, and there's a lot of other advantages silver has as well, but personally I, pre I prefer silver. Now other people say, well, if you, uh, you know, put a lot of money into precious metals, gold being, you know, you can carry a few gold coins around in your pocket a lot easier than a big quantity of silver. So there's that argument in terms of transporting it. It's easier to transport gold coins or small amounts of gold rather than the similar amount of silver, which would be very, very heavy and bulky in the, a, a situation where you want to transport or remove it in, 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 or whatever. So there's pros and cons to both. But personally, my wife and I uh, prefer silver. Uh, Michael, if if you were speaking before a, a secular audience um, or an agnostic audience and you were trying to describe the coming times to them in spiritual terms, uh, what it would mean for them uh, on the deepest level uh, to deal with the situations that are to come, uh, how, how, would you, how would you talk to them about it? What, what would you... What are the types of things that you would say about preparing spiritually? Right. Well, that's a very interesting question, a secular audience, on a, if I can come <laughs> on a spiritual level. But, yeah, I do. And this is something I talk about in my book, actually, is that preparation is not just physical, and most people kind of focus on that, but it's also mental preparedness. We've got to be mentally hard because anybody should be able to see the storm that's coming on the horizon, and I've written over 1,200 articles on the Economic Collapse blog detailing just the economic aspect of what's coming. And, and, and it, to me, it's so obvious. But, uh, you know, just knowing that the storm is coming is not enough, but we've got to be mentally prepared to be able to go through it and not to be shaken up. And, uh, and that ties in with emotional preparedness where we've got to be mentally and emotionally strong for what's coming, or, or, or we're going to just be bulldozed by the hard, hard times uh, that, that, that are coming. Because life is not only 
about what happens to us, but it's about how we respond to what happens to us. And so these, the, these, this ridiculously high standard of living that we've been enjoying, fueled by the biggest pile of debt in the history of the world, this is ending. You know, the, the, the good times, the party, it's ending. Really hard times are coming on the horizon, but that doesn't mean that your life has to be over. You know, uh, in fact, I, my wife and I, we are involved in this stuff all the time. I write about this stuff all the time, but we live our lives in a constant state of shalom. That's a Hebrew word for peace. We live our lives with no fear, and that's what I encourage all my readers to do, to live their lives with no fear. Because we know who we are, we know what we're about, we know what our ultimate destiny is, we know what our purpose is. And, we, and my wife and I believe that the greatest chapters of our life are ahead. So we're excited about the times that are coming. Yeah, we know there's going to be great, great challenges, without a doubt. But we're so excited about what's coming, the opportunity to make a difference. We believe we're going to be able to do more good ahead than we've ever done in our lives before. And so we're excited about what we're going to be doing, about what we're going to be a part of, uh, about what our lives are going to mean. And, yes, maybe um, the, the standard of living around us is, not, is going to be a lot lower. People are going to be hurting. People are going to be struggling. But you know what? In the, if you think back through history and you think of, okay, who do we think of are our greatest heroes, the people we lift up and say, yeah, we look to those people, those are our heroes, those are the people that we lift up and, and say, that's who we really admire throughout history. When did almost all of them arise? Almost all of them uh, uh, rose up uh, during times of great crisis, during war, during times of big problems, some big crisis that they were responding to. They came up in times of adversity. And so that's what this next time is going to produce as well. The, the times of adversity that are coming are going to produce great heroes, men and women that rise up to the challenge, do great things, make a great difference, and, and, and uh, um, are truly heroes in every sense of the world, word. So, you know, people can say, Okay, I see what's coming, and when it comes, I'm going to go and hide in my bunker. I'm going to cower in fear. I'm going to cry, woe is me, and I'm going to try to shut out the rest of the world. I don't think that's the right approach. Instead, we need to say, okay, we can see what's coming. Things are going to be different, but you know what? Uh, our lives can be even better. We can step up, respond to the challenge, choose to make a difference, choose to be a light, choose to be heroes. I think that's the much better choice. Uh, that's a beautiful message, and uh, I think one that we share here um, very much. Uh, Michael, this has been a wonderful show, and uh, I just have to tell you how much we appreciate you coming on and, and sharing uh, all of your insights. Uh, clearly, you know, what you write about and discuss goes um, way beyond just an economic collapse. It's symbolic of much other things. And uh, we um, will continue to share your work on SOT and uh, look forward to other information that you're sharing with others. And uh, as Harrison said, we, we look forward to sending you uh, Earth Changes, uh, Human Cosmic Connection. Um, and I just want to mention again that... Uh, Michael Snyder's blogs, if you haven't checked them out, are End of the American Dream, 
as well as um, the economic collapse. Uh, his books, uh, Get Prepared Now, What a Great Crisis, Why a Great Crisis is Coming and How You Can Survive It with Barbara Fix. Uh, he's got a novel, The Beginning of the End, and a DVD, Economic Collapse, World War III, and the Death of America. Uh, the books are available on Amazon, the DVD on prophecyclubresources.com. And um, once again, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate the work that you guys do, and, and, and I appreciate the perspective you guys have. And, you know, when we talk about heart issues and all these different things, a lot of times, and, and, and with your listeners as well, they might not agree with me 100%. I rarely find anyone that I agree with 100% on everything, but we're all trying to figure these things out the best that we can. We're investigating these things. We're trying to shine a light. And so often in the alternative news world uh, and the alternative media world, I see people fighting against one another, arguing with one another. They don't realize that, you know, who the real enemy is. They don't Mm -hmm. realize that, you know, we're not going to make a difference if we're constantly quarreling with one another. So, yeah, we, we different people have different perspectives, but you know what? We can. Uh, there's so much that so all of us can can agree on, can work toward, and can try to make a difference. And so, I just appreciate the positive perspective you guys have and the great work that you're doing, and and uh, for having me on. And I, and you know, I, my perspective is is different from some people, but you know what? We're all working together. We're all trying to do good things. We're all trying to wake people up. And uh, I just encourage you guys to keep up the great work. Oh, thanks for coming on, Michael, and sharing your work. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Michael. Oh, thank you, guys. I hope I didn't monopolize the conversation. I I wanted to get, uh, get the information out there for the people. And you did a wonderful job at that. Well, thank you guys, and uh, and uh, you know, like I said, I'm just uh, just an a- average guy uh, living in a home nestled in the mountains of Idaho in the middle of nowhere. I'm just trying to do my best to make a difference, and that's what I encourage everyone to do. Because you know what, uh, you know, it's not about putting anyone up on a pedestal, but it's about all of us coming together, realizing we're all fallible human beings, we're all imperfect, but we're all trying to, you know, if we all do our part to make a difference collectively together we can make a huge difference i agree and um i hope uh i hope you'll join us again sometime in the future uh to discuss matters as they develop oh absolutely i would love to uh, to come back again especially when some of the things i talked about today start to happen i'm sure your listeners will be like you know what we want to hear more from that guy so (laughs) all right so thanks again and uh, to all our listeners we'll see you next week Be sure to tune in for our other shows, uh, Behind the Headlines and the Health and Wellness Show. And so, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Take care and check out Michael Snyder's blogs. And uh, you can see his stuff on SOT, but check out his stuff as well. Go to his site. So, yeah, everyone, take care. Bye now.